0: Winborn. And I'm excited for us that today we're going to be exploring the next part of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which we started last week with Jackie kicking things off so brilliantly. And if you missed it, then do have a listen to the recording, or even if you were here, maybe go back again if you have the chance, as there were such helpful and fresh insights in what she last week. So back in January, as a church family, we were invited to join together in a year of devotion. We were invited to commit ourselves to God in a deeper and more intentional way, both individually and as a church. And what a powerful and special way to start the year and it's been so good in our life groups and even in the prayer meeting just last week we've been talking and praying about what this looks like and about how we can be a people growing in our devotion to Jesus to one another and also to our community around us and what is devotion well devotion it carries with it this idea of loyalty, doesn't it, of of adoration, of respect, and loving commitment to someone or something. And to be fully, truly devoted to the Lord, we know only too well that we need to be alert to anything that might take his rightful place in our lives or might seek to compete for the affection or the attention that's actually due for him alone. And we've been looking at Acts and that helpful model of the early church that was so devoted to the Lord and to each other and to the community. And isn't that such a great example for us to look at? So this morning, as we delve further into the book of Corinthians, we see how this devotion and enthusiasm can be challenged. We're going to look at what it means to be united, but the right kind of unity. For the early believers in Corinth, despite a fantastic start, having had Paul with them for 18 months, things have begun to get out of hand, and they've lost their way. In fact, things were so serious that there's even a word, Corinthianize, which apparently means to live a promiscuous life. So the Corinthians have got caught up with pagan traditions around them and within the church, and they've begun to give their devotion and their allegiances to the people that God sent to teach and train them, as opposed to God himself. So let's look at the passage from Paul's letter to them, and we'll read from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 16. And it says this, I appeal to you brothers and sisters in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus or Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. So, firstly, anything that causes divisions or quarrels in the church can't have a good root, can it? We read here just how dangerous divisions are and how they are a real threat to healthy community life in the church. And I had this picture as I was thinking about this. Like, imagine this tiny crack in a layer of ice, and that it slowly gives way under this weight that's put on it. And the cracks, don't they, they start to extend, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until this whole area of the ice, it just collapses, doesn't it? Or imagine this small snowball at the top of the hill that starts to roll and it gains power and momentum as it goes on and on and then it ends up just crushing and damaging everything in its path, doesn't it? And that is what division can be like if it is allowed to fester and to grow. And you can almost sense, can't you, Paul's pain and the disappointment in his heart as he puts these words to paper. I appeal in the name of Jesus that you be perfectly united. So it may seem obvious, but perhaps it's important and helpful to remind ourselves why unity is so important. Why does it matter? Well, Jesus himself said that a kingdom divided cannot stand. How can we be effective for the Lord without unity? How can we love him and follow him, and how can we love and serve each other if we aren't united? So Paul is pleading for the believers in Corinth to agree and to be perfectly united. And we can get a good understanding of what Paul believes unity should look like from his letter to the church in Ephesus. Interestingly, chapter 16 of this first letter to the Corinthians tells us that Ephesus is, in fact, where Paul was when he wrote to the Corinthians. So reading from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, we've got this summary and a picture of the unity that he wishes the Corinthians were actually aiming for. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if ever we needed a guidebook or an instruction manual on how to build unity, it's right there, isn't it? We said before that unity is important to enable us to be effective for the Lord and to allow us to serve him well. In this letter... Paul's urging the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling that they've received. His heart is for them to represent Jesus well, to be good examples of everything that Jesus stood for and all the things that he taught them. He's encouraging them to live as those who are truly grateful for what the Lord's done for them in their lives and that people that can reflect that, day by day. So if we pause and we compare that with the Corinthians, who are fighting, they're divided, they're absolutely not showing this love to one another, and they've lost sight of this calling. And perhaps we can begin to understand a little bit more of the weight of Paul's appeal to them. And as I read those words from Ephesus, from Ephesians, one of the things that impacted me the most was that guarding unity, it starts first with me. Of course, Paul's writing to a group of people, isn't he? But within that, there's a very personal call in those words too. And there are character traits and qualities that I personally need to be working towards if that unity is going to be reached and maintained. It takes everyone's efforts to stay united, including mine. And that's the very essence and the very nature of unity, isn't it? It needs two or more people to make a choice to remain in agreement and to do what is necessary to achieve it. And that first quality that... Paul talks about that's necessary to achieve unity here is humility. That ability to view ourselves and our own importance in just the right way. Not regarding ourselves more highly than we ought to, but also not undervaluing ourselves either. Being totally humble means a complete absence of pride of letting go of all arrogance and self-importance that would make to look and see ourselves as superior. And I was really struck by something that Dale said in a message back in December. And he said, the only way that I can cause you harm is if I see you as less than me. The only way that I can cause you harm is if I see you as less than me. And so I began to think about examples of when I've hurt someone, or when someone's upset me. And I quickly discovered that this is actually the case for every single one of those incidents. And we might not see it immediately, and it might not feel like it, because actually, we might feel totally justified. But essentially, arguments and divisions and hurts They arise from some kind of pride. Underneath it all, if we look hard enough, we do find that the root cause was a lack of humility. Someone feeling that my rights, my feelings, or my wishes matter more. Because pride says, I'm more important, I matter more, but what about humility? Humility lays down its rights and its claims. Humility sees others as equal. More than that, more than equal, sometimes even preferring them, just like Paul writes in Philippians 2:3. Humility gives absolutely no space for division. And the next quality which leads to unity, that Paul talks about, is gentleness. And I believe this actually goes hand in hand with humility. Because when we're being humble, we're demonstrating gentleness. We're not pushing for our own agendas or enforcing our own opinions, but we're making space for others because we see them as our equal. To me, gentleness doesn't always mean backing down and never letting others know what you really think and feel, but perhaps it means not being overbearing or forceful. Gentleness is a way of demonstrating humility and a means of showing that we truly value one another. Another attribute that Paul identifies as necessary for good unity Is patience. Again, I think we can trace this back to humility and pride. For example, I remember I once confessed to you that I am pretty bad at interruptions at work. When I am mid-flow and I'm deeply concentrating on a task and then the phone rings or someone pops their head around the door to ask a question, I really struggle and I like to think I'm working on it and that it's getting better. But the point is, What's at the heart of that impatience? Well, it's pride. My time is being interrupted. My work is more important than what you want to tell me or ask me about. And even if those things were true, and of course they're not, the impatience that rises is because of pride. If we just let go of pride, we make so much space for what is better, for gentleness, for patience. And in turn, what happens? We guard that true unity. So demonstrating these qualities can feel like a lot, and we won't always get it right, will we? One minute we're happily praising the Lord or catching up on last week's message in the car, and the next we're getting mad at the person who just pulled out in front of us. Perhaps that's just me. (laughs) But praise God for his grace and his mercy to all of us and for Jesus who covers each and every one of our sins. Paul reminds us here that if we have any hope of being united, we need to extend that same grace to others because we all need it. He asks the Ephesians to bear with one another in love, essentially. To be forgiving, to be gracious to each other, and to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We have to choose to keep unity. It won't always come easily, and when it doesn't, it requires a choice. We need to take decisions and actions that will preserve and maintain peace. Now, true. And genuine peace, I think, is actually quite an interesting thing. Because peace isn't simply the absence of conflict, or people not arguing. When there's a ceasefire between two different countries or two nations that have been at war, are they really at peace? Are all their differences reconciled? No, they're not. They're just holding back from fighting for a time. And ceasefires are often really tense, aren't they? And they can be broken at the slightest ripple or wavering. And when we strive for true peace and make every effort to keep the bond of peace, sometimes that means addressing difficult situations and having tough conversations. Of course, at the root of it must be love and a genuine desire for reconciliation. When someone comes to us in that way to lovingly share and to try and put something right, I know only too well from my own experience how it is so easy to feel offended, to want to justify our behavior or to defend ourselves. Yet if they are coming to us in love and with humility and gentleness, just like Paul describes, perhaps we can look at that in another light. How precious that they value our relationship so much that they see unity as so important that they're willing to make themselves vulnerable for the sake of reconciliation. And if we look at it like that, our response might differ from one of, you were just criticizing and having a go, to, that must have actually been really hard to share. Thank you for valuing our relationship enough to want to sort this out. And lastly, from this section of Paul's message to the Ephesians, he reminds them why they are one. He reminds them what it is that unites them. It's their faith in Jesus. Their acceptance of the one true God and the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Paul's bringing them back to the truth that as those who love the Lord and follow him, if they can truly submit and follow the leading of the Spirit of God and not their own desires, then they can be united. They follow the same God and share the same faith as, of course, do we. Now, all of this describes in some degree what unity should look like. But if we go back to those quarrelsome Corinthians, then we can see that things are quite the opposite for them. Instead of proclaiming one Lord and one faith, Paul is truly, truly disheartened that some in Corinth are claiming their allegiance not to the Lord and to the gospel, but to him. And not only that, some claim to follow Apollos, some Cephas, and there are still others who are boasting in their devotion to Christ. They have allowed their preferences and their loyalty to their different teachers and leaders to divide them. And because of this, Paul asks a very relevant question just a bit later in his letter to the believers in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9, he asks, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has signed to each his task. building. So that's a great question, Paul. Who is Apollos and who is Paul? Who were the Corinthians having a fight about? Well, first, Apollos. Apparently, he was quite a hit with a significant number of people because Acts 18, 24 to 25, gives him this rave review. He was eloquent. He was competent in the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit He spoke boldly and he taught accurately, quite the write-up. That said, despite his charisma and this amazing ability to draw in a crowd, Paul's co-workers Priscilla and Aquila still had to take him to one side and correct him on his accurate delivery of the gospel. And then who have we got next? Then we have Paul. Paul was extremely well-educated. He was well-known, and he had a high status in society and we read his credentials in acts 22:3. and as a jewish roman citizen who'd received teaching under gamaliel one of the most respected sanhedrin leaders of the day paul's knowledge of the prophets and the old testament scriptures would have been second to none and for that reason he would have been incredibly well respected especially amongst the many Jewish people who'd accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And let's not forget Cephas, or Simon Peter, and he's the disciple recorded in John 1, 42, when Jesus gave him the name Cephas. He's yet another background and a powerful story to share. He was the one whom the Lord promised upon he was going to build his church. He was the one that spoke powerfully at Pentecost, and God gave him the vision of the unclean animals, that the gospel was to be for all who would hear and receive it. And here is where we have the source of that conflict in the church in Corinth. A very mixed group have all come together in one multicultural location, and within the body of believers, different groups have aligned themselves with one of these four different teachers. And some could relate to the dynamic and eloquent Apollos, others to the status and the teaching of Paul, and yet others to Peter the Jewish fisherman who'd become a devout follower of Jesus. The implication is that even those who would align themselves with Christ could be regarding him as just one more teacher or rabbi amongst all of these others. And the problem wasn't that there were several leaders. That is actually a good and helpful thing. Because what a blessing it is that those four were able, all from such different walks of life and with different skill sets, they were able to complement one another and reach a whole range of different people. The problem lies in that the people, the followers of these fractions, instead of allowing themselves to grow together towards a common goal with these various teachers and leaders, they're aligning themselves against the other leaders and against each other. And there's this arrogance that's coming out as each group becomes really cliquey and exclusive, boastfully claiming that they've got it right. So going back to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9, Paul demonstrates the very qualities that he's been talking about of humility, of patience and grace, things that he desire the churches that he's writing to would show. Instead of reveling in the attention and the following, which would have been so easy for him to do, Immediately, he directs the Corinthians' attentions back to the heart of the matter, to the Lord. Each leader has been chosen by God to do a task for God. They're servants through whom they came to believe, and they each have certain giftings that have enabled them to share the gospel with many people. And Paul's challenging the Corinthians to remember that it should not be the leaders who are exalted or esteemed, or the focus of such fierce loyalty that it causes splits in the church. Their eyes should be on the Lord and upon him alone. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they are simply the faithful bearers of the gospel. It is God alone who is causing fruit to spring up. It is absolutely right that the Corinthians honoured their leaders. It is good that they respected them and held them in such high regard, appreciating who they were and their God-given skills, just as we do here. Yet their error was valuing that above the Lord and allowing their personal preferences to come between each other and God. We value our leaders not just for their skills alone, but because of how they serve and how those gifts lead us closer to God. What we read about in this letter to the Corinthians, this split, was be as if we today in the NLCC began drifting off into little groups with the Verwood Church firmly stating, well, we follow Tim. And then the Downton group saying, well, we like Mark. And then those at Fordingbridge saying, oh, Paul's our leader. And yet us again here at Wimborne declaring, well, we're Team Dale. What a messy and unhealthy place to try and worship and fellowship that would be. On a slightly larger scale, it would be like all the various commission churches aligning themselves with their own leadership to such an extent that their loyalty caused barriers between us all. Imagine one church Sunday, or commission festival, or the men's group, or flourishing vines meetups, if we allowed that to happen and those attitudes to creep in. It could be so easy for personal preferences and opinions to separate. There's this great quote from C.S. Lewis, and he writes that the enemy makes us a critic where we were meant to be a pupil. The enemy makes us a critic where we were meant to be a pupil. And what he's saying is that instead of listening and learning, in place of receiving what God has for us, we may all too easily find ourselves drifting off because we don't prefer a certain song or we'd rather, not, we'd rather listen to another speaker. And it is so easily done. We're only human. And again, it's good that we learn and grow in different ways. But let's ensure that we aren't missing out on anything that God has for us and let's guard against what the Corinthians did and ruling out everything else because of preferences. Paul's input is key in bringing the Corinthians back to a good place again. It was Paul who originally visited with the news of Jesus being the fulfillment of Scripture and the one that they had been waiting for. And it was Paul that God used to establish the church there. And that's why it needed his voice of reason to try and heal the divisions. If the situation wasn't addressed, it would have only got worse, like that ice or like the snowball. He states he's glad he didn't baptize any of them, as this would only have fueled their misplaced loyalties and added to their confusion. So as the one chosen and sent by the Lord to bring the initial message, it needed Paul's authority to bring an end to these quarrels and restore the unity that had been lost. And I'd like to finish by briefly sharing with you this personal testimony of the power of unity within the church. So back in 2005, straight out of university, I spent a year in Guatemala with a Christian mission organization. And at that time, long-haul flights to places like that, they weren't still quite as common as they are now, and this was the furthest that I'd ever been from home. And as a nervous, lacking in confidence 22 year old, I was doing this adventure alone. And I will always remember the tears streaming down my face during that first church service when the worship began. And we began to sing, Abri mis ojos, O Cristo. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And there I was in a strange land in this small rural town in a country that I knew so little about, amongst a very different people and culture, more than 5,000 miles from home, and suddenly we're singing to the same God with the same song that I knew so well, in one spirit and of one accord. And around 20 years later, I'm still in touch with some of the church family that I met back then. So I'd like to invite Danny and Iona to come back up and perhaps they could come up and by way of response, if the Lord's been speaking to you and it's been so amazing the way that he's been moving this morning and if he's been prompting you, I'd like us to have just a little bit more time to respond afresh to that call to devotion. Maybe some things have come to mind as we've been looking at these passages and as we've been exploring this maybe some things have come to mind that have been a block to you moving forward with that invitation to devotion or maybe you want to ask for the lord's help to grow in those qualities that we've been talking about or perhaps your heart is just saying yes lord let me be aligned to you and to you alone and whatever it might be let's bring those things to the lord now and we of course we're here to pray with you so if the lord's putting anything stirring anything in your heart that you'd like to pray into Please do just come forward and we'd be only too happy to to pray into that with you now. So I'll pray and then we'll just worship the Lord and have some time to, to respond a bit more to what he's doing. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've been doing here this morning. How you have been surprising us. And we want to affirm again our commitment and our allegiance to you and you alone. So we just offer up again these next few moments to respond to you, Lord. We are living sacrifices, Lord, for you. So we pray that you would continue to move amongst us at this time, Lord, as we offer ourselves afresh to you and to you alone. Amen. Amen.